All right, this is a second interview with Mike Pettit for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. Um, today, once again, we're in my home in Washington, D.C., and today is Tuesday, April 1st, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Um, let's pick up a little bit um, from where we left off uh, last time. And uh, there was one thing that my notes showed, which was that uh, you wanted to talk about that first plane trip you took with Dole where he was sleeping, and that's the key word. So now you tell me what you had in mind. <laughs> oh, uh, that's uh, a little anecdote. You know, I, I flew up to New York with the senator. He had asked me to go up there for the day for lunch, and, uh, and I remember thinking, now why am I going with him? He has something in mind that he wants to talk about. And so I'm sitting next to him on the airplane, and back then you took the Eastern shuttle, and yeah, I'm sitting next to him, and and uh, he he fell asleep in the plane, which he was wont to do. I mean, you you learn how to when you're a politician, you're traveling around on planes, you learn how to catch 15 or 20 minutes at a time. Well, I looked over at him, and this is this is embarrassing, but he had something hanging out of his nose. Now, Bob Dole is one of the most fastidious people. His clothes were perfect every day. His his hygiene, his demeanor was exquisite. And I looked over at him, and I'm thinking, now, how am I going to tell him to do something? Because, and it was illustrative of the distance that we had. And, you know, he was a guy, I was a guy, but I was a, I was a young kid. I couldn't just say, hey, you got a thing hanging out of your nose. So, and I remember thinking, how am I going to tell him this? So he's, he's about half asleep and half awake, and I think, if I do this myself, maybe maybe he'll reflexively catch on. So for about five minutes on the airplane, I'm catching my own nose. And and sure enough, he responded to that. He woke up, and that was his first reaction, and he got this thing hanging. So we got off the airplane. He didn't have to be embarrassed. There was a big greeting party, and we proceeded to the 21 Club. But I thought it, it made me laugh because it. I realized, you know, we, we had, I mean, he was just such a, uh, a man that we admired for his taste and clothing and just the way he carried himself and just to be with him in that situation. I mean, we, you know, we traveled together. I'd, I'd seen the difficulty and the struggles that he had getting himself dressed every day and all those things. But for some reason, this just struck me as kind of a different, a different thing. So, right. Right. and it was on the day that he offered me the job to, to be his administrative assistant, a job, of course, which is now known as the chief of staff. So, right, right. And you covered that. Yeah. You covered that well. Um, I think, really, we covered uh, your office time with him, except for things that we want right. to talk about in more general terms. But I thought today we'd start out by going into the 88 campaign, because mm -hmm. right? we didn't talk about that. Right. And tell me what your role was and your impressions of that. Well, in the, in the fall of 86, uh, when it became clear, obviously, that he was going to be a, a real serious contender with George Bush, um, I was working in the Senate office, and I had committed to him in 85 that I would stay in the Senate office through the 86 campaign. 86 campaign was over. He won resoundingly. So I wanted to do something different. I've been on the staff for a long time, and, and I wanted to set up a, a consulting firm. I really, I wanted to go work on the campaign, except I didn't have any particular skills on the campaign. So, so I, I carved out a, a transition for myself where I went out into the legal and consulting business, but I also dabbled in the campaign. Uh, the things that I did on the campaign were, uh, you know, I would travel with him occasionally to different states. By the time the 
the the Brock regime came in in the summer of '87. Uh, you know, I, I was not on a day-to-day basis doing anything important for the campaign. That you know, there had been times when I did and times when I didn't. Uh, you know, it, now that's my role, which was really I, I won't pretend to be a big campaign advisor in '88. Although there, you know, there were times when we traveled and he sought my advice. Um, his that was his time to be president. And he was at the peak of his powers intellectually and every other thing. And, and I remember in, in 85 and 86 having some discussions with him, mostly by memo, trying to, you know, he was trying to understand, can you run, how do you run as the third term of Reagan, if that's what you need to be when George Bush is there? Do you have to be an outsider to some extent? if George Bush is there? Can you be an outsider if you're the Senate majority leader? All these things that made it very difficult for, in, especially in retrospect, for a dole to be, become the Republican nominee. Uh, he got a break in a way when the Democrats took control of the Senate in 86 because he could be, at least had a foil uh, in Senator Mitchell and he could, he could fight the Democrats a little bit. The Iran-Contra thing broke in November of 86. Uh, Interestingly, I was in the Soviet Union on a trip at that time, and my first knowledge of the Iran-Contra thing came when all of a sudden, on this staff trip that I was taking, uh, I noticed that there were increasing number of senior-ranking Russian officials, Soviet officials, that wanted to spend time with me. They had made an early calculation that this Iran-Contra thing was going to harm George Bush. And uh, I'm not sure what kind of intelligence they had, but uh, they wanted to really get to know me, which was interesting. I wasn't a foreign policy expert. I went over there as a generalist, but the, but the November of 86 timeframe was very vivid to me. And we went as a staff person, we went, uh, we had this um, uh, exchange with the, the, all the Russian young Soviet leaders and uh, debated arms control and all these other things for a couple of weeks on a in places all around the country, and they were very interested in Bob Dole. They really probed for, and so I got the the experience of sort of through the Russian mind, through the intelligence guys over there, and they were, well, they made no bones about it. These were intelligence guys. They wanted, they were beefing up their files, and they really wanted to know how he viewed, you know, arms control and his views on the economy and trade and and all kinds of things. So it was a fascinating time. Uh, Dole did a brilliant job in the first couple of weeks of the Iran-Contra thing. He, he supported the president where he could and yet left the door open. Mistakes had been made. The whole policy of, of uh, arms for hostages is not something the Americans can tolerate, and he made that clear. And yet it always it drove Bob Dole crazy. It does to this day that George Bush was not tarnished with that to the degree he should have been. We knew, and history has shown, George Bush sat there in the meetings, watched what happened. His intelligence guy, Don Gregg, uh, was very heavily supportive of what the president was doing, perfectly in the loop, and George Bush managed to walk away from the entire exercise uh, almost unscathed by that. And it, and it really, uh, it, it frosted us, to say the least, those of us that, that knew kind of what really should have happened. Was there discussion in the inner sanctum that uh, 
this was just too toxic to uh, go, f you know, expose? Or I mean, it would have been an interesting campaign issue. Uh, well, it was tried. You know, the Dan Rather tried to go after George Bush in January of '88. Uh, he knew what the what the story was, and and they had this. Uh, exercise on the CBS Evening News one evening where, where uh, Rather and, and George Bush got into it and, and had hostile words. Uh, we tried, I won't say we tried, the media tried to make it an issue and certainly, you know, our people to the extent we had any influence on that would have been supportive of that, but uh, it just did not gain any traction. So, Within the campaign, it was discussed as a potential issue, or no? Th this was not uh, these kinds of things that involved sensitive matters like that. Dole would have run that operation in his own head and with his own one or two people that he could trust to to try to do that. That that would not have been the kind of thing where the campaign had a conference call to talk about this. That was not the way Bob Dole ran anything. Right. Anything sensitive. What's, was his call, his play. Right. <clears throat> well, this leads to a number of questions now. Um, let me start with this. In terms of the 88 campaign, how was the campaign, the early primary situation, different then than it is today? Well, Dole's only chance in 88 was to win in Iowa, which was held, I think, on February 8th, so it was later, and then New Hampshire was February 16th of that year. And his only chance was to do what they almost did, and that's build up ahead of steam, win Iowa. Uh, I think Pat Robertson came in second and George Bush came in third. History will tell us that. Um, and then build up the momentum through New Hampshire. If he won New Hampshire, then he had a fighting chance. If he didn't win New Hampshire, which, of course, is what turned out, uh, it would have been tough for Dole to raise the money. Bush had an advantage in money in cash on hand, in, in organizational structure and strength, uh, particularly throughout the South in the Super Tuesday states and all of that, which I think was March 5th um, that year. And uh, so, so even had he won New Hampshire, it would have been a, a challenge, but the, the campaigns can move pretty quickly. Dole should have won New Hampshire. He, he, if, if the New Hampshire primary had been held instead of Tuesday, February 16th, if it had been held on Friday, the Friday before, or the Saturday before, he would have won. And for some reason, the, the momentum sort of shifted back to Bush, and it's unclear exactly why. But uh, I was up there that week in New Hampshire, and, and it was exhilarating. It was really the first time I thought, and when I would see Dole and talk to him, and I, I, it was the first time I really imagined myself calling him Mr. President, because it just felt like it. And he, he looked regal, and Elizabeth and he... You know, traveling around, they it looked like it was ready to happen, and it was heartbreaking that that the momentum shifted back the other way. And when the defeat occurred in New Hampshire, most of the people knew that the game was over. Within a day or so, I think I think it was pretty well known. the The fundraising challenges were made more difficult, and uh, and there really wasn't a pathway. I mean, we you know. The, if Dole could have won South Carolina at that time in the first couple of days of March, maybe. But and I went down there with a lot of people, and we spent a week trying to trying to pull South Carolina out. And there was really, it, it was just you know, the, 
the establishment, the Republican establishment sort of re, re, defaulted back to the, you know, let's pick the, the next guy, and that's Bush. He's been vice president for eight years, and he's been loyal, and, and there, was, there was no intervening event to derail that movement at that time. Was there an attempt to get Reagan to say anything on Dole's behalf, or was it clear that he was backing Bush? Uh, subtly backing Bush, I, th I think if anything... In 87, Howard Baker was the chief of staff in the White House. And I think if anything, if you gave him truth serum, he would tell you that he backed Dole over Bush. Uh, there was a signing in December of 87 of the one of the nuclear arms treaties um, in the White House. And, and the White House had orchestrated this to exclude Dole's participation at all. Howard Baker said, no, that's not the way we're going to do things here. And he arranged for Dole to have a prominent position in that ceremony, the famous ceremony where Reagan and Gorbachev and Reagan kept saying Dovarai, no Provarai, or whatever it was, the trust but verify, and Gorbachev finally had enough and said, you keep saying the same thing. And uh, Reagan said, well, it's true. So, but, but Dole was there throughout that, and that was, that was through the hand of Howard Baker, who wanted to maintain a fair uh, competitive primary, but also I think I think probably favored Dole. Speak about the organization of that campaign and the management and the big shift that occurred when Brock came in and whatnot. What was going on? Well, for most of the early part of that campaign, I was still working on the Senate staff. And uh, as I think back, you know, the, the Bob Ellsworth was the nominal chairman of the campaign for a while, but but he made it clear he was a caretaker until they put another structure in place. Uh, Dole, you know, I knew enough to know that he had been talking to other people, but uh, there was, it wasn't clear there was much of a structure in the, really the first six or seven or eight months of, of 87. Uh, and Dole was traveling around, making friends, raising money, building up a little momentum, but it was mostly his own work. I mean, the field people, for example, in the uh, that worked on the campaign that, that that were supposed to be building up these ground operations. I mean, one of one of my jobs in the campaign was to uh, travel around and just sort of check on these guys. What are you doing? You know, go out there and meet with them and meet with the people they've recruited. And every time I go to one of these, I go, "We have nothing." I mean, there's no organization. There are no people. They're not. And I didn't know if it was because they weren't signing up the right people. Now, I didn't go to. I knew. I knew Iowa was going well. Once again, that was a dole operation. He ran every play. He and Tom, Tom Seinhorst put that thing together, and nobody got in the middle of that. Uh, and Floyd Brown played it, did a nice job out there in the Midwest. Uh, there were some other, in other parts of the country, there just was nothing happening, no traction. And we didn't have enough money. We weren't spending the money. We didn't have the money to, to go build up a, a ground organization. So... It was all a campaign that, that needed to catch a wave and, and have momentum propel. So what caused the change in, in management of that campaign? Well, it was inevitable. It, it was uh, uh, Bob Ellsworth was, was going to do it uh, as long as he could do it at the time, though Bob had been really out of active Republican politics. I mean, he had been in the Nixon White House and he'd been ambassador to NATO, uh, but he hadn't run a national campaign. And and knew that somebody needed to come in, and, and that finally occurred. And I don't remember now if it was September, October. I, I just don't remember what month. But when it happened, it didn't surprise anybody. And they brought a lot of people in, and 
you know, with all due respect to, to Senator Brock, they didn't have a plan either. They had the same plan that was the old plan. They just had more people. So, so there were a lot of people like me that had been, you know, dabbling in these things. And all of a sudden, we didn't really have anything to do on the campaign. And, and some of these guys were coming in, spending money from out of town, renting apartments and wasting money and all that. It just made us crazy. You know, the, the, the handful of real dull loyalists that thought we could win this thing. Uh, I had, it's interesting, um, and, and it's a little bit typical of Dole. He didn't really trust the people that he knew. He was always looking for some magic person to come in that had campaign experience that he didn't and they could turn this thing around overnight. And I remember in, in 85 or 86 talking to John Sears, who ran the, the Nixon campaign in, in 68, heavily involved. And I said, you know, this is Dole's propensity. And, you know, who is it that is out there that we don't know about? Because I keep hearing these discussions, but I don't see a logical person. And Sears said, you got, it's, you're wasting your time. You've just got to build it yourself with the people that are intensely loyal to Dole. There's enough talent around him to do it. But, you know, Dole didn't really see it that way. The, the people that he had around him had talent, but not in that way. They had talent in in, you know, running the finance committee or doing, you know, other things, but not in running campaigns. So it's not that Dole was wrong about that. It's just that there wasn't a miracle worker to come in and, and turn the campaign around and, and propel it to victory. And it's curious in a way because he had the 76 campaign to draw on in terms of how you run a national campaign. It wasn't as if he was a right. naive. Right. Now, of course, I wasn't around in 76 and I don't I got the sense from talking to people after the fact that that was pretty haphazard operation too. Uh, you know, they would decide I mean, on Tuesday where he was going to go Wednesday to shore up support for President Ford, and 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 that you know, in a way, maybe a dangerous thing because that's the way Dole likes to run a campaign. He likes to wake up every day and call an audible and say, "This is what we're going to do." Campaigns have to be uh, layered in advance and sequenced, and a lot of thing, a lot of decisions have to go into that, and that. That's a, that was a hard thing for, you know, for a guy like Dole with his management style to even turn that part of it over to, to other people. I suppose that kind of <clears throat> campaign style <clears throat> pardon me, uh, would work in a state. Right. You could decide to go to Wichita right. rather than Topeka tomorrow. Right. But when it comes to a national campaign, it just wouldn't work. Right. Right. Yeah. Let's, um, unless there's anything else that occurs to you to say about 88, I'd like to... Well, only that the, the, the public really has forgotten how close Dole came to being the Republican nominee, and, and he would have been elected president that fall, and really, but for a couple of days and a few points, I, I really think, I think he would have built on the, on the New Hampshire win, and I, th I think it would have been his year. And you're pretty confident that he would have been a formidable uh, opponent to Bill Clinton? I well, in, in, it would have been to Dukakis in 88. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right, yeah, of course, right. Of so, yeah, I, I think his, you know, you know, one of the things that I would say, back in the, you know, I would have discussions with Ellsworth in the, in the summer of 87, and, you know, we're trying to define Dole to an extent, and what, you know, what is he, and how can he, how can he differentiate himself from Bush, and, and, and I had spent some time in, in, the, in 86 over in the Soviet Union, and I sensed all this change was coming. And I said, I got a crazy idea. Let's position Dole as, you know, 
his persona is as the tough guy, the the guy with real, you know, a steel character. You know, let's let's amp up his foreign policy credentials. Let's let's send him on some foreign trips and do that kind of thing. Ellsworth kind of thought it was a good idea, but nobody else, everybody else in the campaign said that's crazy. That would be a waste of time to send him. You know, we got to go from state to state and and build friends. I'm not sure I ever could say how, you know, what the defining characteristic of Dole was in that year, except a competent, experienced senior guy. He used to say, you know, if you want to, in 80, he would say, if you want a younger Ronald Reagan with experience, I'm your guy. Uh, in 88, it was, it was just, I've got experience, I have character, I've, I've proven that I'll make the tough calls, and I've got this life experience that's equipped me to be a good leader. And I think that was that was it. And it's we, we don't elect presidents. We need a little bit more pizzazz for the presidents that we select. It seems like. Well, and I suppose he always was dealing with the kind of echo of the hatchet man, the dark, the dark character. You know that was out there. Most of that really came from '76 campaign and the you know the the comment in the debate about Democrat wars. Um, you know there there was a dark and brooding side to Dole as perceived by the public. You know, he had this dark hair and these dark characteristics. Uh, the more he would open himself up to people and go around, everybody would say, this is the guy they talk about? Because he, in person and day after day in the flesh, he's not that person that, that was characterized so negatively. But, but yes, that perception was out there. Let's just uh, leap forward now to 96, because mm-hmm. we're talking campaigns. Unless, were you at all involved in this 92 re-election? No. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your participation in 96. Uh, by that time, uh, I had established a successful consulting and, and legal practice and you know had a number of clients that, you know, I had developed some expertise in certain areas and I guess I remember in the early part of the campaign, we were all, all the old Dole alumni were sort of called in and said, you know, this is, this is our year. And the first thing we got to do is raise money. So we all, myself included, spent some time in the early part of 95, you know, doing everything we could to help put the fundraising organization in place. And so I did what I could to help out on that. Uh, We started putting together, we, we did a better job this time of putting together the policy apparatus uh, that would drive the, the, uh, the, the positions and, that he would take. So we, Bob Lighthizer headed up a, an organization, we called it the Lawyers Committee, but it was really the Policy Committee of the campaign. And, and, and I, w- I had done a lot of work in telecommunications and information technology, so I decided I wanted to do that. And, and it was, uh, we, we did some interesting things in that area. Uh, so I guess that would be my subject matter expertise, uh, th- that I did utilize those, whatever I knew to help the campaign out. We carved, you know, the, those were not central issues in the campaign at all between Dole and Clinton. You know, we, we thought, I thought they should have been more so. I thought Clinton got a, uh, a little bit too much of a free ride among, you know, at this time, remember the internet was new and all this the economy, part of the economy was exploding, and particularly in Silicon Valley and all these other places. And, and we did end up uh, garnering the support of the majority of those people who had voted for Clinton and supported him in 92. 
And we turned most of those people to be supportive for Dole and for the Republican philosophy of less government and less regulation and all that kind of stuff. But that was not a, that was a non-event in terms of the overall scope of the campaign. Did you think that uh, Dole himself was deliberately trying to do things differently in 96 because of the mistakes that were made in 88 or not? I think this, the truth of the matter is because of the mistakes that he'd made in running the campaign in 88, because of his reputation as a micromanager, when he was trying to hire Scott Reed to run the campaign, Scott made one demand, made several demands, but he made one demand that Dole had to live with, and that is, I run the campaign, you don't. You're the candidate, I run the campaign. And, and Dole had to make that agreement with him, and he honored it for the most part. I think the result of it was Dole was micromanaged. He was, the, the country never saw the true Bob Dole when he ran for president. I think that was a, to some degree, a, the fault of a campaign that tried to restrict him too much. Now, you know, the real unedited Bob Dole would do nine things that would be brilliant off the cuff and one thing that might get him into trouble. And they were worried about him doing the one thing that would get him into trouble. And, uh, you know, he had a, you know, he, as you know, he has a sarcastic way of looking at things and making comments, and those are capable of being misperceived. I think they bottled him up, and I think it was a mistake. I think the only way for, for him to win is for the real Bob Dole to have come out. And, you know, part of the problem was his own dilemma. He, he was confused by that time. He knew he had talent and judgment, and he knew that he had what it took to be president. But he didn't know how to run for president. He didn't know how to position himself as a candidate for president. He went to Philadelphia in 95, and he said to the Republicans assembled there, I'll be whoever you want me to be. Well, that doesn't work. You know, you got to be who you are, and then it has to capture, has to be the right candidate at the right time. And I think that, that part of it, I, I look back on it, and it's a shame. I don't think Dole understood it to the degree he should have then. I, you know, it was his turn but he was looking elsewhere for uh, others to help define him. All he had to, had to do was be himself, and that was his best chance. Um, my recollection is Reed was brought in to replace others in that campaign. Am I right, or did that start? No, Scott right was from Scott from was brought in from the start. Uh, Bill Lacey had been was going to be the number two. Let's just pause here and let this go through its cycle. Uh, no, I, I mean, Dole had had a good working relationship with Bill Lacey. Bill had worked on the 88 campaign and, and had stayed involved with Dole. So Bill was going to be the number two guy. He wasn't judged to be capable of running the whole campaign. He probably could have. He did run Fred Thompson's campaign this year. But um, So what um, it, it was understood that, that Dole was talking to Scott, and, and I'm not sure who else, but I think Scott is who he had his mind, had his eye on. And I, and I like Scott. He's a talented guy and a, and a good manager. But, you know, the other thing Scott said is all those old hangers, honors from your past career, we don't want those guys around. We're going to do our own thing. We, we've got our own people that are professionals and, you know, follow the advice. And, and, and you know, I don't blame Scott or anybody else for, for asking for that authority and receiving it. By the end of the campaign, in the in 
when you, when I'd go over there in October in September October of 96 those guys that had come in as the experts for Dole they weren't working 20 hours a day like you do in campaigns they they'd given up you know the only the only people that were working hard were the people that had been with Dole for a long time that really cared the Dennis Shays the Sheilas the you know the the people that that had this you know reason to have this great attachment to him and these other guys didn't um, and and in fact, there was a fair amount of churn in that uh, campaign team, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, Scott was reworking things as he went. Right, right. Well, he, he was, and and they bounced Bill out of there after after New Hampshire. Uh, I think probably unfairly for some decisions about ad buys and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, they you know in. in there was a lot of concern, you know, even though Dole was the presumptive nominee, you know, he, he just barely won Iowa, didn't run a very good campaign in Iowa. In 87, he had had this message, he's one of us. And he was. He was a Midwesterner, and, and he captured the the um, imagination of Iowans that year, and he was really the perfect candidate. Conditions were different in 96, and uh, the magic wasn't there. He just barely won, and he was grumpy the whole time out in Iowa, and it wasn't, you know, there, there just wasn't anything happening. You know, New Hampshire didn't go well. And then they started, you know, layering in, you know, they they put other senators on the plane to just keep him in check, and the it was, uh, uh, he wasn't having any fun. The The whole idea was not make any mistakes. Well, if the country had seen Bob Dole, if Bob Dole had been an on a bus doing the Straight Talk Express, the press would have been in love with him because of the things that he knew to talk about all day long. He was funny, smart as a whip, and, and could talk about anything. I mean, you'd, you know, it was just really just an, an amazing uh, guy that was so misperceived, and they just kept him bottled up, and so... Were you aware of any attempt by uh, perhaps other senators or whomever to go to Reed and try to shift his strategy? No, because they were all concerned Dole would blow it for them. And they, they delivered the same message. We have to keep him, you know, keep him under control, make sure he doesn't get too frustrated and too grumpy. And, you know, we'll just go along, kind of keep him company. And, and it, it worked. I talked to some of those senators, you know, before and after and during some of those trips. And, and, uh, you know, it was all fine, but the collective impression for Dole was these guys are kind of keeping me bottled up. You know, I'm, a, I'm an open field runner. I just let me run. Let me do what I need to do. And, and I know that would have been his instinct, but he, he, it, it, the battle was lost. He gave that away after the way he ran the other campaign. So that's the tragedy of it all. Anything else about the 96 experience? It's the first time, you know, I, I, Bob Dole is, is an amazing physical specimen. You know, people have forgotten what a great athlete he was in his early days and, and even what he's done to overcome those injuries to live the life he's led. In, in 96, he was 73 years old. I was around him enough. I never thought he had lost a step. I never felt that you know the country would have been taking a chance on anybody that old. I, I didn't. I would have. I would have seen it. Uh, but there were people 
the whispering was out there amongst people that should have been supporters of his and strong supporters. They would they would get to a tough spot and they'd say, well, you know what, maybe he's too old. Maybe this just didn't his year. And and that's unfair. And, and in, in the whole retrospective history, 88 was his year. He was in... He was the champ in in fighting prime, and and so maybe maybe ninety six was was not the perfect year for him to run. And and Clinton would have been tough to beat anyway. Such a great campaigner, the economy was good. A lot of a lot of reasons why Adol couldn't have won. But um, right, let's shift gears a little bit and actually <clears throat> relate to to some one of the things that you had told me you wanted to talk about, and that was the effect of of his war experience on his personality and character and subsequent history. Right. Well, the the simple fact that he got himself up from the hospital bed and fighting what m- must have been depression at times in his life from that, the fact that he didn't complain, that he put on a smile in the morning and would charge ahead and try to make the best of his life it it almost it's so inspiring it almost makes me emotional to to think about how much I admire the guy um, but it shaped him in in so many interesting ways the the way in which his brain developed because of the loss of his writing arm uh, I maintain he has the most the best photographic memory of anybody I've ever known, but also combined with a complete steel trap of mind through his ears. If you said something in an auditory fashion and it and it meant something to him and he was paying attention and it registered, he would recall that same conversation five, six, seven years later to a T. I think that's because of the way he had to train his mind while he was lying on his back. He couldn't read, he couldn't move, he couldn't do anything. Uh, when he went to law school, he couldn't take notes. They let him wheel in this little clunky recorder, and it was it was an awful thing for him. But he learned how to use his mind. You know, to if we all use twenty percent of our mind or ten or whatever they say, he learned how to use eighty percent of his mind or ninety percent of his mind, and it and it was amazing. And I think, uh, you know, through that, I think his uh, he laughs about his college days. I used to say, now, were you a good student? Were you smart back then? He goes, oh, I just goofed off. He said, I just drank beer the whole time in college. I wasn't serious about anything back then. We knew we were going to war. And I said, yeah, but were you? did you think of yourself as a smart guy? And he said, oh, I, I got by. But I think the truth is, his intellect didn't develop until later on in life. Interesting. Um do you see any uh, connection between his war experiences and his sense of humor and the sort of intensity of his character? I think intensity, ambition. He he was born with ambition, and and I think the I think that was intensified after his war experiences and after he got into politics. Uh, you know, I, I think you know one of the things that I would haven't thought about this much, but I, you know, almost his. There were situations in 
84, 85, 86, 87, leading up to 88. He knew he was going to run against George Bush, and he became so competitive with George Bush about little things that didn't really mean anything. So I, th- I think that's one thing that, you know, maybe had there been somebody there that said, oh, come on, let that go, you know, that, that, w- that might have been a good thing. Uh, so, so ambition, competitive is, is a, maybe a, just this deep, you know, inner-driven competitive sense about him in every situation. I think that's, that's really who he was. He was such a an athlete mm-hmm. and had such an interest in sport before the war, his time in the war. Um, when you were with him, would you say he remained an avid sports fan, or did sports really sort of fall by the wayside? It came and went. He he got kind of interested in the in the KU basketball team uh, when they were good, and and Larry Brown was there. Uh, he got kind of interested in the Georgetown basketball team. Pat Patrick Ewing worked for us in the summer of '81, uh, so Dole kind of got interested in that. And, uh, KU, I don't know. We went to the World Series a couple t- in '85. Uh, uh, Kansas City Royals played played uh, St. Louis, and we went to a couple of World Series games, and and we would talk about his childhood and listening to the radio and listening at that time to the St. Louis Cardinals, because that was who you picked up on the radio in Russell, Kansas. Uh, but no, I think a lot of that went dormant. He wasn't one of those guys that sat around and watched NFL football on Sunday. It wasn't a big chunk of his life, and he paid just enough attention to it, I think, to be conversational. You mentioned that you had spent some time with his family. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. You know, I was only at his uh, house in Russell twice where his mother was there. And uh, it, it, the, the thing that I'll never forget that would strike me, you know, here I was a staff person and we would watch out for everybody else and see what they needed in a situation and, you know, try to make the trains move on time. And, and all of a sudden we'd show up at, at Dole's house on Maple and, and Bina was there and he became a little boy again and he would wait on me. He'd get me a cup of coffee or get me a, a pastry or something. And, it, and he was, I, and, it, and it struck me that he had this relationship with his mother that was just spectacular. And, and it must have been. I mean, she, for all that she did for him over the years. Uh, and, uh, but it was, just a, it was just a really heartwarming thing to see. Bob Dole, the kid, in front of his mother at the age of 55 or 60 or however old he was at that time. What words would you use to describe her? She was a pretty savvy woman. Now, she was in the last couple of years of her life when I, when I saw her out there. Uh, she was quiet, soft-spoken, but she could tease him a little bit and, uh, you know, very respectful, enormously proud of her, of her son. Did you see any common personality traits? Like, did she have a sense of humor? She had a sense of humor. Yeah, I think, I I would guess that's where, you know, and I I didn't know his dad, who died, of course, back in the, in 75. Uh, I would guess he got, I I would guess he was his mother's son. It's fascinating to think about him as the kid. Right. Any, any, any other anecdotes of Along those lines. No, I think that it just, you know, it was just funny to see the different side of Bob Dole then. You know, 
again, you know, when I started working for him, I was a kid, and I was in awe of him, and, you know, we had our respective roles in life, and mine was the subservient young staff guy, and and to, to you know, of course, over time now, it's 2008, I mean, I've, he's treated me like an adult now, you know, and we're, we're friends, and we talk about all kinds of things, but, but back then, it was a different relationship. Um, talk about his management style in general, and how that operates. Well, you wouldn't uh, study his management style and make it the the uh, lead article in the Harvard Business uh, Journal <laughs> review because it wouldn't work for very many people. And it did work for him, and in part because of his unusual ability to retain huge volumes of information. Uh, they talk about different management styles being where, where there is a chief of staff and people report through the chief of staff, and then only certain information bubbles up to the office holder, the decision maker. And, of course, that wasn't true at all with Dole. And, and I was, I guess, lucky enough to recognize that early on and didn't pretend like I was going to be the bottleneck of any information, nor, nor did anybody else that ever served in those roles. Dole had his own relationship as a spoke-of-the-wheel management style with every person that worked for him. And he had uh, multiple sources of information and intelligence even outside those chains. And, and so uh, all of which couldn't have been possible unless he was willing to work, you know, 75 hours a week because that's a, that takes a lot of work to manage everything. But he did. He always knew, even in some little area of... The, of, of managing the office, he always knew things that you couldn't believe he could possibly know. One time he, he predicted, and I cannot remember the issue, but all of a sudden he was talking to me and he wanted to know how many people had written letters on that issue. And I should have known, I suppose. I didn't have any idea. wasn't even curious about it. And he said, find out. You're supposed to know those things. And he and he said and he and he said and I'm he wrote down he said I'm going to write down what the number is go find out so I did and I'm you know there, we had systems in place to find that and he was almost exactly on point he knew what it was that would cause a constituent in Kansas to write a letter to him about something or from around the country for that matter he was a national figure by then and it was just he just knew those things and and he just had a sense about that 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 really played you know. <laughs> Other politicians would die to have that kind of that kind of skill. One time we were t- we were riding on a plane somewhere, and we, I was he was in a really good mood, and I was tossing ideas out at him. And what about this amendment or that amendment? And he would say, "Well, eh, that'd get about eighteen votes. That one that one would get about forty four votes." Just just the mention of a word, and he did these calculations in his brain, and he would know exactly who they would need to get to get the other six. Now, some of that is what all politicians could do, but these were esoteric issues. These weren't mainstream issues, you know, that that you think of. And there were but he could do, you know, obviously he could do it. And that's why he that's why he was such a good leader too on when he became the Republican leader in the Senate on the big issues. He knew exactly how that was going to shake out and, and that's a great skill. It, let's think about his the the uh, personal office. Say uh, just prior to his becoming leader, because mm-hmm. then things split mm-hmm. to a good degree. Uh, 
Um, and I'm thinking of kind of a weather map of his office. Mm -hmm. uh, where would the hot spots be, and how would the power break down? Well, before the, you're talking about before he became majority leader in, in 84, you know, there was his own staff, then there was a Senate Finance Committee staff, then there was a Judiciary Committee subcommittee staff. Um, and really, it would depend on the, what was going on at that time. You know, during the, during the uh, extension of the Voting Rights Act in 82, in the summer of 82, all of a sudden, this relatively obscure Judiciary Committee role that he had became all that he did for two or three weeks. That was the big thing. Uh, but, but then two weeks after that, he wouldn't talk to those people for three months because he wouldn't need to. So it was on an as-needed basis, depending on where the focus was at the time. Uh, the, the Finance Committee staff was com comprised of extraordinarily competent and professional people in their areas, and he was the chairman of the Finance Committee until then, and so, you know, he spent a lot of time with, with those people. Right. I was wondering where, say, someone like Walt Riker would fit in as uh, press secretary, and we talked before about uh, Joanne Coe and Betty Meyer mm -hmm. as being gatekeepers and so mm -hmm. forth and having a lot of influence. Mm -hmm. Where were other pockets of influence within the personal office? Well, Walt spent a lot of time with the senator, and, and, and he, you know, the senator respected him. Walt was a real consummate pro. Uh, he did not have the kind of latitude that other press secretaries had. Uh, Walt played it straight by the book because Dole wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, other press sec secretaries that worked for other senators were skilled at leaking information out to reporters and doing all kinds of things and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Walt uh, couldn't have gotten away with that if he'd tried and didn't try. And, and that was why he had a good relationship with Dole over time. Um, Dole could, you know, when an issue would come up, and they needed to issue a press release, Dole would need to say about four or five words, and Walt could write three or four paragraphs. He knew, you know, they became uh, symbiotic in, in some way at that time. They, they knew how to reach, read each other's minds, and Walt was a very competent pro. What about the speechwriters? Were they floating in and out, or were they staff, or how did, how did that? Well, you know, a lot of times staff would write, I, I guess I would call them, extended talking points that would then be turned over to somebody else. But, you know, most of what Dole did didn't consist of giving uh, a formal speech. And he, frankly, wasn't very good at it and never got very good at it. Uh, so he would get some talking points and kind of wing it a little bit. And if, you know, if you read the transcript sometimes, you'd think, this guy's got a disjointed mind. None of this holds together. It doesn't make sense. But if you saw it in person, it worked because of his commanding presence, his personality, uh, interspersed with fun, some jokes, some humor. It all worked. It was a great package. Uh, so, but, but certainly, you know, if, if I had one regret, I would have done everything I knew how to do to force somebody to teach Bob Dole how to give a speech. He just never got very good at it. He, he tried to spend time at it at times. Uh, there was something I thought about as I listened to his voice. It, he, you never got all the way through 
to what was inside of him coming out. There was always a reserve in some way. And I don't know, uh, I'm probably making that up, but he, he, I, I only saw him give a few speeches where I thought this is, you know, where he actually could read a speech but emote appropriately. There just weren't very many times when I thought he did that extraordinarily well. Now, there aren't very many Obamas, there aren't very many Reagans, there aren't very many JFKs, but I think with the hard work that Dole put into, well, I think he could have gotten better at that. Excuse me. <coughs> um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, can you just move? Sure. Good. Good. Great. Um, the next point here, um, uh, is about Dole's conservatism versus his pragmatism. Mm -hmm. How did that balance out? You know, it's interesting to look back in with the historical <clears throat> knowledge that we have about how the Reagan era has defined what conservatives are. There's another way to define conservatism, though, if you came from the Midwest. Conservatism was not spending more than you made, for example the small-town America conservatism, which, you know, Dole was imbued with, that, that somehow got lost in the shuffle after the first part of the Reagan Revolution. Because, you know, where Dole had been the guy that sacrificed for his country, that was willing to make tough decisions, that was willing to put difficult, unpopular issues on the table and cause his colleagues to vote on him, the Reagan White House really didn't do that. They 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 shied away from the tough things. They they you know, and in a way that that defined conservatism for the next generation in a way that may not be fair. Uh, when when Dole pushed so hard for deficit reduction back in the mid '80s, it wasn't because he knew it would be popular. Because he thought it was necessary. He knew that the percentage of the budget that was going to be consumed by these entitlement programs would increase as a percentage. That was going to harm our defense budget over time, it was going to harm our, our way of life. Uh, but it wasn't that he thought forcing people to vote for tax increases and spending cuts was a good, was a popular thing. He just thought it was necessary. Um, you know, I watched the, obviously very carefully, the debates in the Republican primaries this year, and they're all looking for the no-pain republicanism that Reagan embodied. And, and it wasn't that Reagan didn't do great things, because he did. And, and he had a great vision on two or three big things. Uh, but, but there's a blend of that somehow that, that is, is lost. And I, I'm afraid it will take some time before Dole gets the credit that he deserves for, for taking the tough stands that he did. I mean, when he and, he and uh, Senator Moynihan decided to rescue the Social Security system, uh, in 82 or 83, they had a whole commission that had been working on this for months and they were deadlocked as most things in Washington are. And through some extraordinary goodwill and just a decision, this is necessary for the country. And then he had to go out and explain, you know, well, this is going to raise payroll taxes and all that. And he was excoriated by the conservatives in the country. Well, I guess they would want you to never take a tough vote on anything and I think that's too bad. Talk about Erta and Tefra, those mm -hmm. big battles in the early right. days of, of Reagan. Right. 
Well, I think Tefra, you know, as I thought about it, uh, well, IRTA was the 81 Tax Act. So Dole is clearly on record as saying we got a little carried away. We, we gave out too many goodies. We, we gave, uh, particularly on the corporate side, we gave too many uh, uh, benefits to corporations and cut their taxes to ridiculous degrees and, and skewed all the decent economics out of it. So we needed to go back and fix that. Uh, when, when I started on the staff, it was just after they had passed that. In fact, we about the time Reagan signed the bill, we were, I was on a tour with, with Dole through Kansas, and he was explaining that. And I, I remember thinking, and I think I might have said this in the last time we met, that I asked him why he kept talking about that economic package as they say. You're the guy that voted for it and passed it. How come you don't say, we, I think. And he got really mad. You know, I was an impudent little staff guy of 27 years old. Uh, he didn't think that was a funny question, nor did he give me an answer. But I, I developed a sense. He knew, well, we got to go along with this, and then we'll fix it later. And I think, you know, that's what happened. Uh, so in the fall of 81, as they're putting together the 82 budget, uh, Dole built an ally in Don Regan, the Treasury Secretary. And Regan understood taxes had to be raised and the loopholes had to be closed. Uh, but the White House writ large didn't want to have anything to do with it and uh, so they passed the the tax bill you know the the constitution says tax bills have to originate in the house of representatives uh, not this one this this bill was a senate package only it was a bob dole package that was put together and uh and then they passed it and then they went to conference with it with a house bill that was laying on the calendar so that that i don't think that's happened very many times like that uh Dole didn't just say one day, I'm going to decide I'm going to be the most popular guy in America by closing tax loopholes. His attitude was, I'm chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. I'm a steward of the economy and of, of, of fiscal policy, and we need to correct the excesses. And it's as simple as that. And it wasn't that he didn't care about his popularity. He felt like over time people would understand the prudence of that position. There hasn't, to my knowledge, been much made of the 80, what would have been then, the 83 tax bill? Or was there one in 83? They had an 84 tax bill. They had a tax bill every, 83 I don't think they had, I don't think there was much. But they did one in 84, more deficit reduction, but no big ticket items. The the thing that caught the public's attention in 82 was there were a couple of controversial uh, provisions in there, the withholding on it, on it, dividend and interest income, which we talked about last time, which I thought Dole, frankly, got some bad advice about. Um, and and there were a few other uh, controversial issues in that package, although I don't remember them being very controversial before passage. I remember that interest and dividend withholding issue percolated throughout the year afterwards and was finally partially repealed in 83. And what about the 85? The 85 uh, deficit reduction package that Dole did. He really had, I think he had been elected leader for a, Republican leader in 84 for a lot of reasons, but I think his colleagues really respected that as former chairman of the Finance Committee, he had a certain gravitas on budget matters and he would, he would lead the party in the right direction. Um, so he made it a centerpiece of, of the, his first year as majority leader. 
uh, with no support from the White House at all from the start, uh, with no support from the Democrats, with no support from anybody, he decided to put a package together. Um, he got the votes for it. It passed through the Senate, and then it was torpedoed later. He says that Nancy Reagan told him through an intermediary that had the president not been preoccupied in April of 86 by the controversy over his visit to the Bitburg Cemetery in Germany, that the whole budget thing wouldn't have been screwed up. Now, I I don't know why Dole told me that. It does not even particularly apropos, but I think that Reagan was trying to say to him in some way, I know what you did is right, and I'm sorry it happened, that it unfolded that way. But it nevertheless didn't impair Dole's ability to lead or anything. I think his, you know, his members uh, uh, in his caucus certainly supported him, and they respected him for what he tried to do. But by that time, the, you know, the options weren't easy to reduce the budget. You know, you've got to raise taxes or, you ha- or cut spending or both, and, and they did. They, they cut some programs, and, and they weren't, it wasn't very popular. And they, and they passed it by a 50 to 49 vote. And Reagan did sign it. No, no, he did not sign it in '85. They torpedoed it after the right. fact. They, all the conservatives, went to the White House and they protested. And you know, you're, you're not all about this. Is not supposed to be about the, the Republican philosophy is not about raising taxes. What are you doing, Mr. President? And he, he caved in and sent the word down to put the kibosh on this deal. So then, how did it finally resolve? Well, they passed a budget, but it didn't have the dramatic deficit reduction in it that. That Dole had shepherded. We're at the end of this tape, so we're going to take a break. mentioned that you had some vignettes of, of Dole managing Ronald Reagan's tax policies. Do you recall what you had in mind for that? Hmm. Well, the, the fact that he, you know, did so much of it on his own without the support of the White House. The, the one thing I think I said in the last one, it, it has to do with this arcane issue of the interest and dividend withholding and the way Dole was talking to the president about it and got the president to buy into it. I happened to be in his office, but I think I mentioned that last time about um, the fact that they said, you know, Reagan said, well, wait a minute, I think we did that in California. I think we passed a bill like that. And Dole didn't know, nor, nor did anybody else, whether they had in California. But, you know, the, the, but Reagan understood it. You know, Dole took the heat for it. And, and he was public enemy number one for this. But, but Reagan, he and, yeah, I wouldn't mind saying a little more about that because I remember Reagan actually being informed about that. And, and then, you know, and yet the White House was so good at letting Dole be their heat shield on all those issues. They never, you know, right, you know, you, you would ask Republicans today whether Ronald Reagan ever signed any tax increases and 90% of them would say no. He signed every one of these tax increases that that Dole shepherded through the Congress. 
expand on that just a little bit, his relationship with the Reagan White House and on economic and maybe other issues? Well, I, you know, Dole really did understand that the Congress had a different role. He had a different role constitutionally and otherwise, and so he was going to do what he thought was best. The Reagan White House was very well managed, especially in the first four years under Jim Baker, and and they knew that they knew how to manage the president and keep him out of trouble and keep his popularity ratings up there. And so I guess I would only say in retrospect, if you if you look back, uh, when when there was a time when a tax when when TEFRA had to be signed into law, you know, the president didn't go out of his way to say this is important deficit reduction. He probably did in his statement, but a very, very low key. And he would let, you know, probably wisely, he would let Dole take the the heat or the credit or whatever for, for those things. And uh, and I think, again, over time, it has led to a little bit of a misunderstanding of, of Reagan and the way Reagan did actually support some of what Dole did uh, and, and thoughtfully and considered. Were you with those two men often? And No. Maybe once or twice. I remember once going to the White House with Dole to a meeting, but I wasn't invited into the meeting. I just went there because we had to get, go somewhere else, and I and I waited. I, oh, I saw them together once or twice when Reagan would come to the Capitol. Not very often, uh, you know, State of the Union speeches, that kind of thing. But not not in any way to judge their relationship. And in your meetings with Dole in his office, did he ever express exasperation or admiration or whatnot for what was going on down? I thought he went out of his way to overly praise Reagan at times when I think he was a little frustrated by him. I, it's well known that Reagan wasn't a detail guy, didn't learn a lot of details, and you know they would be working on excruciatingly detailed matters in the Senate, and they'd go down to the White House, and Reagan would just tell a story. I mean, I remember Dole commenting on that a couple times, like, you know, right in the middle of trying to decide this, and he just starts telling stories. And uh, he didn't say it in a in a terribly derogatory way, but there there was a little frustration there, I think. I, I don't think, you know, I mean, remember, when Reagan came on the scene in the mid-'70s and into the, into the, to run for president in 80, even after that, nobody really knew what they were getting in Reagan. They, they didn't know much about his management style. They He would give these speeches that he believed in, uh, but there was uh, uh, there was some skepticism about whether he was really up to the job for a long time, and uh, you know then he was obviously assassinated or the assassination attempt in March, and I, and I don't think you know I think history shows he wasn't really uh, working on the job until several months later, and, and probably that impacted him terribly. So, but that doesn't matter. The rest of the leadership in the Congress and in the country made things run fine. And I think Dole played an important role during that time. And he supported him every chance he could. I gather that you felt Jim ba uh, James Baker was really essential in there, too, in the first few years. I think so. We, uh, you know, our office would have had more contact, Dole would have had more contact with Jim Baker, even though he knew that Baker had been a 
uh, you know, was close to George Bush. He'd also run the Ford campaign in 76, and they had a, a respectful relationship. I think there were, you know, as the 80s proceeded, the tensions and the competitive nature of that came into, uh, into focus a little bit more, but not in the early 80s. You talked about uh, the loyalty of Dole's staff. Say a little bit more about that. You know, over with the benefit of, of hindsight, over the years and even after Dole's career ended, uh, I've, I've seen so many people and run into so many people who to this day have this deep emotional bond with, with Senator Dole. They, they revere him. They, they miss him in their lives. He, he took up so much space in all of our lives. And, and for so many of these people, and, and this is true of a lot of politicians, so many people don't ever have anything else that replaces that. And there are people that, as a result of that, are they have issues they're still working out in terms of their relationship with old years later. And I ran into a guy on the street about five years ago, and I'm not going to say who it was, but somebody Dole had been close to and, and uh, worked with at times very closely. And he said, you know, it just hit me. I'm really bitter at Dole, and I don't know why. I, I, I don't, and I, maybe it's that I miss working around him, or maybe it's that, you know, for all that I gave to him, I just didn't get the reciprocal emotional relationship, and that was a shortcoming of Dole's. I mean, that, that wasn't his job. He had too many people that revered him to, you know, to get emotionally invested in all the staff. I mean, he, you know, in his way would show that he cared about people, but you know, he wasn't going to go to somebody's wedding or say anything particularly uh, philosophical or emotional to anybody at, at, at any point in time. And I, I think, you know, the people that worked for him, and especially the talented ones that stayed a while, really gave their all for him, and, and they just didn't feel like they, they got enough back. I, I've just heard that from several people. Right. I'm going to pause here just for a second. You... Uh, said that you felt that you were a sort of permanent member of the Dole family. What do you mean? Well, I think, you know, I, I put in my years of working directly on the Senate staff for him, but then every chance I could after I left, I would, you know, try to spend time around him. I would try to help him in every way that I could. Uh, you know, there were even extended into my professional practice, there were there were clients that would try to hire me to go and talk to Dole about something, and I would always turn those things down if that was the full scope of the engagement. I didn't want to abuse my relationship with him, and I felt like, you know, there'd been a mutual respect, but you had to earn it with him. So, um, you know, when you, I, of course, didn't know, you know, for in the late 80s when I was practicing law for the first time again, and I didn't know we would run for president in 96, so I didn't know how that would play out, but I, I, uh, I just always, and to this day, I would do anything to help Bob Dole. I mean, he's, he's a hero of mine. Does he ask you for favors? Uh, oh, not so much anymore. He would, if, if he did, you know, he not, not outside of the ordinary scope of what friends would try to do for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, favors in the political world meant... I need you to do a favor. I need you to raise some money. I need you to uh, talk to this person. I need you to do these things. And you would just do this, 
you know, because it was in his interest and, and you wanted to do it. How would you distinguish him as a senator from other senators? Was he unique in some ways? Well, I think at a point in time, there are four or five or six or seven senators that are head and shoulders above the rest in terms of their integrity, their ability to see the whole world, the whole playing field, and to do what's right for America. Um, over time, the quality of those people, in my opinion, has diminished since the early 80s. Today there might be three or four. I couldn't think of two when I had this conversation with somebody not too long ago. Uh, Dole was in that elite group for a long time, uh, and he, if people knew everything that that there was to know, they would sleep better at night, knowing there were people like that willing to give up their lives to serve their country. And, and so, yeah, I think he was unique in that way. But, but not alone, but unique. Do you want to name any others of that? Of that? Well, I, you mentioned Senator Nunn a while ago. You know, for a while, Senator Nunn was one of those people. Uh, for a while, Senator Domenici was one of those people. Howard Baker, uh, George Mitchell was one, uh, and he and Dole had a fierce competitive relationship, but uh, great respect. Um, you know, going back to the early 80s, uh, you know, there were people, you know, Scoop Jackson was somebody that people respected on defense and national security matters. I mean, Democrats, uh, David Boren for a while from, from Oklahoma. There were a group of people that, despite their political affiliations, when a tough issue came to the fore, they could come together and get in a room and do what's right without regard for the political consequences. That's what I think it defines leadership. And I, and I fear that in this era, uh, we'll never have that again. And, and, and it makes me sad. The, the people like Dole may not come along again. And their parties may not let them be appreciated for playing those roles. It may have become too partisan. 81 to 87, did you see things slipping then, or is it mainly since then that, that this has happened? I see it. Reagan sort of held it all together under one tent. So, so there, you know, even he took his criticism from the extreme wing of his party on, on some matters, but, but by and large, no. And, and he was brilliant at paying lip service to different part of the social conservative movement where he didn't actually do anything to advance their cause. That is fractured over time. Uh, you know, the, you only need to watch the Republican primary battles to see what it is that people want to talk about. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, McCain is a, is a moderate. He's running this year. You know, he's a little bit out of the dull mold in some ways. But he doesn't have the experience on economic matters, certainly, that, that Dole would have. But, he, but he's a w guy willing to take a tough position and, and look his, the extreme wing of the party in the eye and say, well, that's who I am. But it's getting harder for guys like that to do. You've got to dance with those guys, and it's hard to just be straight with them and say, I disagree with you. We talked about conservatism versus um, pragmatism. Uh, what about... Dole's political philosophy moderating over time. Did you see that happen? No, I didn't see his positions changing much. 
I saw the party moving to the right. Um, I think uh, if you look at the big issues, I mean, Dole is who he is in terms of the economic issues that conservatives would would count on that scoreboard. Uh, you know, he was willing to, to make tough decisions, uh, and some of that did not uh, was not met well by that by the hardcore conservatives. I think that the party sort of moved to the right, and I think the you know, the social conservatives and their agenda that were, are fueled by all the talk radio and all that kind of stuff, we didn't really see that coming in the 80s. And and if we had, we wouldn't have known what to do about it. I mean, there were times when we would sit around and have uh, brainstorming sessions about new media opportunities and are we communicating in all the ways that we can about our message. But certainly nothing like today. And as, as I see what's evolved today, it, it's hard to, you know, it, it's, it's a tougher environment. And the, well, it's just a tougher environment for a guy like Hill. But back to the main question, is he, did his ideology change? I don't think so. I mean, he, you know, the, the, he did the food stamps program with George McGovern in the 70s. The conservatives hated that. But that's Bob Dole, the compassionate conservative. Um, you know, he did the Voting Rights Act extension in '82. That's Bob Dole, the compassionate conservative. That's all about individual freedom, and 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 so I don't think his philosophy changed. I think the party moved to the right. And what about his philosophy as an issue in '96? And you mentioned his statement in Philadelphia to the arch Republicans and so forth. Was he sort of? Um, trying to remold himself or as a pre successful presidential candidate, or did he stick well, by Well, that seemed to be implied in the question, that, that I am, I mean, I think if I can imagine Dole having a conversation with himself about that statement, in his way of thinking, it would have been, look, I have the flexibility because I have been on, in the middle of a lot of issues, and I've taken, I've had an eclectic uh, uh, record in some ways. I've taken positions that conservatives have not liked. I've taken positions that they've loved, but I've called it as I saw it. So I think in his mind when he's saying, uh, I'll be whoever you want, I, I think he's saying, I know how to temper down a little bit of this and turn it up over here a little bit. I think it's all, and I think it's innocuous in his mind. The way it came across was, uh, to me, I, I'm Bob Dole and I'm 72 years old and I don't know enough about who I am to just run for president as me, and I, I it, it just, it, in retrospect, it sad, saddens me in a way, because I always think if the country had seen the real Bob Dole, they would have elected him president twice. When you were talking about his campaign people uh, preventing him from being himself, were they pushing him philosophically to the right a lot, or was it more just preventing him from making misstatements? In the primaries in eight, in 96, they pushed him to the right, and... Uh, they they boxed him in a little bit on some issues and and you know i i don't think it caused him any major heartburn you know he always felt like he could negotiate his way back to the to where he really wanted to be over time but no there was a very in fact he gave a uh, response to the state of the union address in 95 uh, to the clinton state of the union address and this really should have been the big kickoff to the dole campaign and and it was a speech that was 
that was written by Murray for the for the hardcore uh, right, and it fell flat. I mean, Dole's demeanor was terrible. He wasn't comfortable with the speech. He didn't give deliver the speech well, and and it caused people to say, "Ooh, that was a mistake." But but it was you know if you had to, and I don't blame anybody for saying this is how we're going to lock up the primary early. That's just politics, but. Uh, it it uh, it was a reflection of the calculated effort to push him. Right. Um, let's go back to some issues. I mean, we've covered the economics mm-hmm. pretty well, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be interested in, since this is an area of particular expertise and interest of yours, about the telecommunications legislation over the period of we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Well, Dole was never on the relevant committees. He was never on the Commerce Committee. And yet he did have some basic instincts about uh, deregulation. And, you know, I remember talking to him about the, starting with the, uh, the, one of the first things I ever worked on was legislation affecting a restructuring of the telecommunications industry. And it was occurring during the antitrust trial of United States versus AT&T. And I was surprised that he generally even knew what it was about. I mean, this was something for the antitrust and economic wonks and all that. But he sort of knew where it stood and that the case has been going on for years and what was at stake. And he had a couple of simple understandings about the economics that surprised me. So as we worked on different matters that related to that in the early 80s, I, I can't tell you that he ever knew a lot of the details of the, of the economics, but his attitude was, look, if we're going to try it, if we're going to move to a deregulated environment, we have to take tough positions and we have to move, we have to get there, we have to let it work. You can't do halfway things and have industries that are partially subsidized, partially deregulated. He said, that, that's not going to get us anywhere. So I, I was impressed by, I wasn't at the time, because I was always, you know, I knew all the details and I always wanted to get him to know more. I look back on it and I'm impressed that he had these guiding instincts that that really were all that he needed to know. That's talking about Dole. What about just the issue of telecommunications policy over that period of time? Well, the country was moving, uh, you know, into moving away from regulation of a lot of industries, you know, airlines, telecommunications, and and uh, a lot of those areas. And it, and it was tough, you know, it, as I just said, it it's tough to move away from a structure where there are a lot of... Uh, uh, people that are being propped up uh, by cross subsidies through an industry, you know, th- cross industry lines through the government, and and then if you're really moving to deregulated environment, that means nobody gets subsidies. That means that you're not regulated, and those those kinds of issues usually take 10, 15, 20 years to really shake out, as it has proven out in telecommunications and in other areas. To the benefit of the country. Not without some uh, uh, some losses along the way. Not without some uh, pain, and and you know, but but over time, that's a better economic model for the country. Uh, it produces more innovation, and it produces uh, better job growth, and and we've seen that. But it's not a pretty, you know, our economic system is not pretty. Um. What about Dole and foreign policy? You've mentioned a few mm-hmm. of his trips and so forth, but mm-hmm. just give us a general impression of, of that. You know, in the 80s, um, Dole tr- was, you know, knew that he had to 
ramp up his credentials in foreign policy, but didn't know how to do it. We struggled with having the right advisors on foreign policy. Uh, we struggled with a profile for him, and partially that this would have been true for anybody. Ronald Reagan was so dominant in, in you know, the Republican White House, and what, there wasn't very much wiggle room for Dole anyway. But, but we tried to come up with some alternatives to the nuclear build down and freeze movements and all of those things. We, tr we tried to do some things to position him. He was never very comfortable with any of it, frankly. Uh, I think he, you know, he wanted to be Ronald Reagan and, and do what Ronald Reagan was doing. And, you know, part of the, when you come from the Senate, you're always looking to have your voice heard, and the only way to have your voice heard is to say something different than what somebody else is doing. Well, that was tough in foreign policy. Uh, I remember sitting with Dole in the fall of 83 in his office, and it was on the day that the Senate was debating the War Powers Resolution right after the Marine barracks had been destroyed in, in Beirut. Um, at the same time, it was the day after the invasion of Grenada, so there's a lot of foreign policy stuff going on. And, and, uh, you know, I was listening to the debate on the Senate floor, and, and the senator called me in, and we talked. And I remember thinking, you know, he, he's not really very curious about what's going on with all this. These are big breaking events in the world. So I finally asked him about it, and he said, in his typical fashion, he said, I know exactly w what everybody's going to say before they say it. He said, I, and, and he did. He rattled off. He said, He's going to say it's a cut-and-run philosophy. We can't do that. He's going to say that, you know, we've, we've got to stay there. And I mean, he just had it all mapped out in his head. And so he had calculated, there's no reason for me to go just join in that chorus at this time on that. It, that's going to play out. Uh, at the time, I thought it was lack of curiosity about those things. I don't know. I, I think he, by the late 80s, he was a heavyweight in foreign policy. He, he really had done his homework on... Uh, but I would say, and in a way, I don't know how he got there. I mean, I look back. He, he had a foreign policy advisor that we we brought in from a, uh, from the CIA, uh, Al Lane, and Al, Al did a did a nice job of, of educating him, bringing him along. He really knew how to teach him in in little snippets and segments in ways that would make a difference to him, and I think that was a that was a good thing. But. On foreign policy matters, Dole always had a network of people outside the Senate staff. You know, he knew who the heavyweights in the Republican establishment were. Bob Ellsworth, I think, maintained you know longstanding relationship with him and 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 introduced him to other people. He was having plenty of conversations on the side. We tend to forget that uh, that in the early '80s, it was still a, a hotly anti-communist world in, mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill and whatnot. Where did Dole, Dole fall in on, on that score? He would never have said that it's an evil empire, as Reagan did. Uh, he, he would never have, he would have viewed it as a more of a defense and national security issue as opposed to a uh, deter a fate that is determined by, uh, or, or a course that's determined by fate. I think Reagan, and to some extent George Bush and others, will say, you know, we were always going to win because we had God on our side and we had right on our side, and 
And when you stifle human freedom, that doesn't work over the long haul, and our way of life's better. Dole didn't think about it or talk about it in those ways. Not that he, I won't say that he didn't think about it. He didn't talk about it in those ways. He, he would talk about it in practical terms. And, you know, while he had disputes with Weinberger particularly about the defense budget because he felt like he got everything he asked for at a time when Dole was trying to cut the, the budget, he nevertheless was a strong defense hawk and he understood what we were doing. Uh, I was in West Germany in 83 and, and, um, and I remember when I came back and, and Dole asked me a question, you know, he wasn't used, used to asking me questions about my experiences. Uh, and he said, how bad were the protests? Well, it's the first time I had even been aware that he knew that there had been big protests about the INF deployment in, in Europe at that time. And sure enough, I was in Germany for several weeks and almost every place we went, there were big protests. So he was really interested in that. How to, how did I read it? How did I calculate that? And, and, uh, Never mentioned it again. He, <clears throat> what was his philosophy vis-a-vis the Department of Defense? He never thought it was very well run. Uh, he thought a lot of uh, uh, a lot of money was wasted. But I think he was respectful, uh, you know, of of the people he met with. I. I didn't sit in on those meetings when you know the generals would come to brief him about things. So I, I'm not sure that I have a strong knowledge. I, I, I you know, he was a war hero. You know, he he he, he certainly wasn't going to go around bash the Pentagon, and I don't think he felt that way. Was he sort of a Skip Jack or Scoop Jackson, Sam Nunn? on defense matters, or was there not a real distinction? With probably a little, not quite as. Uh, in that elite, in terms of knowledge and dedication to that subject matter, but their you know instincts not too far off, I would say. But he did fight them on budgetary matters. Well, none would help uh, uh, a lot on budgetary matters. He'd be one of the Democrats. Dole's, you know, Dole could get him to vote for some of those things. What about the Dole's interactions with world leaders? I didn't see as much of that. You know, I, I didn't go on a lot of those trips with him. Uh, you know, Walt has, you know, talked about a lot of those things and Dole meeting Saddam Hussein and all of those things. I didn't see so much of that myself. But you do feel that the Dole is, is undervalued in terms of his understanding and so forth of foreign policy. Is that, is that Oh, correct? absolutely. Now, now, especially in the early 80s, no. But, but over the course of time, absolutely, by the late 80s, I thought he had a a real command of the of the issues, and and he had internalized it. He wasn't just repeating somebody else's speech. He really knew what he was talking about by that time, mm-hmm. and, and up through '96. You know, he carved out some very controversial positions on Bosnia and those things in the you know early '90s. I mean, that that's just the, those were his own instincts after being there and studying the issue. Um, I think we're sort of moving now just in a variety of little pickup questions. Um, you have uh, some feelings about how uh, Dave Owen was treated during the, uh, as a former uh, campaign person for, for Dole. Would you talk about that for a bit? Well, I've heard it said by some that, that, uh, that after Dave Owen got into some trouble, press scrutiny and otherwise, in the 88 campaign, 
and that Noel had to disassociate himself from Dave and asked Dave to step down as the finance chairman, that somehow it was in Noel's interest and to help cause bad things to happen to Dave after that fact. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I think it was Noel was totally agnostic about Dave Owen for a period of time. I think he felt let down by Dave. Uh, Dave had had a relationship with both Bob and Elizabeth Dole, a um, close personal relationship, a close political relationship. And I think Dave had done some things that he shouldn't have done in terms of the way uh, some, of the, some of his financial activities were intertwined with other things and some of Elizabeth's Dole, some of, some of Elizabeth's money was tied up in some of these things. But to suggest that Dole would have wanted Dave to be prosecuted on tax evasion I think is is far-fetched. Dole would not have had, I mean, even if he had privately wanted something like that to happen, which I don't think is, is what he is all about, uh, he would never have contacted a prosecutor, had anybody contact a prosecutor in his behalf. I knew because there were times when people asked me to ask him for the authority to do those kinds of things, and he drew a very tough line about that. He said, that, you know, the First of all, it's improper, and secondly, it's a political scandal for me to have done that. Anything like that in any other context. So it was just the question would not have even entered his mind, and I and I can't believe that even if it had that anybody would have listened. <clears throat> I mean, the things that Dave did get into trouble about having to do with some tax issues relating to building, I think, a racetrack or a dog track or something in the state of Kansas that was a state issue. Dole wouldn't have known about the facts anyway. So. The idea that some have had, that somehow Dave, Dole wanted Dave to suffer, I think is wrong. And, and I will say this, and I, I was on a plane with Senator Dole a year or two ago, and uh, we were going to a funeral of a former staff guy, and, and it was a guy that I hadn't known very well, and the senator just wanted me to go along with him for the day and spend the day talking, and as we did sometimes. And, and uh, I said, I called Dave Owen to get the background on this guy. And uh, this was in 2004. And uh, Dole's eyes perked up, and he said, how's Dave? And I told him. And I said, Senator, have you ever called Dave? Have you ever talked to him? And he said, no. And I handed him a card, and I said, here's his phone number. And about three days later, Dole called me and said, I called him, and I want to thank you hmm. for, for making me do that. That's something I should have done a while ago. And Dave and I had a good conversation, and he and I are friends. Um, you you told a couple of anecdotes uh, in our first session about uh, Barry Goldwater, particularly about his his uh, last night in the Senate and so forth. I bet you have some stories of some of others of Dole's colleagues. Can you recall any, or which which other senators really struck you as being particularly interesting characters? Well, I loved Alan Simpson. He was a great guy, a great character, and a lot of fun. Um, you know, Howard Baker was a a guy that you know I really looked up to. He was the majority leader when I was first there. Uh, I remember going over when Dole was first elected majority leader and uh, we went over to tour the offices that he was to inherit from Howard Baker and we looked around the offices were kind of shabby there wasn't the carpeting was worn and all that and we went into 
Baker's big office and there was just a little desk in the corner and Noel said, you know, I don't know how he does it. He comes in at 10, opens the Senate, works a little while, then he goes to the gym, then he does all this and, and he just doesn't have the work style that I do and yet he's an effective leader. But it really perplexed him because, you know, the one thing Dole knows about is hard work and, you know, he doesn't, he, it's hard for him to really appreciate somebody else that can do a job successfully. But he did. He appreciated Howard Baker's talents, even though it kind of irritated him that he didn't think he worked very hard at times. So, But he was a truly effective leader. I think Baker. he was a truly effective leader. I think Dole really looked up to him and, and really liked him. Really, Remember when he stepped down from the presidential race in 87 and Dole was going around saying, you know, Howard Baker is probably my best friend in politics. I thought he overstated that because I didn't ever think they were that close, but there was this real respect among each other, between each other. What do you think are the qualities that make a good leader? I think you have to really listen and understand what where somebody else is coming from. And, and not only that, you project beyond that, not only what they say, but you have to do their politics for them sometimes. And I think that's what Dole was really uniquely able to do. He understood different industries in different states and the pressures that those industries and those economic conditions would put on a particular elected official. So he did that math in his head already before, you know, as he's dealing with them, he's got about three tracks going on in his head and it's all it's all calculated in his decisions. It, you know, I think a good leader has to have different styles. You, you talk to, you know, there all, all the stories about Lyndon Johnson had one style, and that was throwing the fastball at your head and getting you close and shaking you. And Dole wasn't like that at all. He had, he had multiple styles. I, I don't know that he, that he liked being tough with anybody, and, and, and I'm not sure how good at that he was, despite the surface bravado and the, you know, the dark... <laughs> characterizations of him, he's kind of a softy, and I think if you worked around him long enough, you knew that. But he could be stern. Uh, but I think he, uh, he he had different styles, and I think that's what it takes to be a good leader. It's interesting because some of the leaders in both parties have been larger than life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Johnson, mm -hmm. Dirksen, I think, probably right. fed into that category. And then there are others who who, like Baker, like Daschle, in my judgment, seem like sort of quiet, mm -hmm. smaller men. Mm -hmm. um, how, how is it that both of those types work well in, 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 in that role? Well, I think, uh, you know, to take a Daschle, for example, and I have a high regard for him as well, um, extraordinarily bright guy, and... and works harder than anybody let on and and his I wouldn't call him soft-spoken I would call him extremely articulate um, but not loud not boisterous I don't think anymore a, a, a really strong boisterous I'm gonna lead you're gonna follow guy I don't think those people can lead the Senate anymore because of the everybody's got their own you know constituency and everybody it's kind of a you know, there's no party politics, no discipline. So, I think it takes a pretty collegial guy. So, I think Dole had that. Did uh, Dole have buddies among his colleagues? 
he never had close buddies. He had people that he shared a lot of you know information times with. They they'd laugh and all that. But no, I would I would say in the in the main he was a loner and kept his own counsel about a lot of things and um, did not have close relationships with I mean outside of the business environment with other other senators. A few exceptions. And my impression is that extended to staff and and most of life, I I understand. Is that correct? Oh, not to most of life. I mean he had different friends, you know, around the country. They mostly were people that he'd known in 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 politics and, you know. Uh, but with staff, there was a, a clear um, uh, not not a what, what's the right word? I mean, they, you know, he was the boss, and we were the we were the worker bees. That was, for, but that even even beyond that, there were friendships. You know, there were there were people that you know he could have fun with, and he could we could laugh and and uh, but not not friendships like you know me and my college buddies, for example. I, I think, Dole, in, in this private world, you know, you look at the people that he, um, you know, when he ran for president in 96 and he sat in there and watched the networks came in and and uh, uh, watched Dole watching the nominating speech and the guy that he has with him is Jordan Haynes, a banker from Wichita, Kansas, that Dole had known and worked with for many years and, and they were two... I mean, could be two of the strongest personalities in the world, and I, I probably spent a hundred hours in my life brokering differences between those two, or trying to help each other communicate with the other at one time or another. But they both loved each other, and and Jordan just loved Bob Dole. He died two years ago, and and it was Dole was broken up by that. I remember he called me after the funeral and, and uh, talked about it, and it was it really upset him. Um, I lost my train of thought here. I had a let me just pause here for a moment. Um, you wanted to mention something about Huck Boyd. And, oh, and I'm curious to know who did, he was. And right, uh, legend has it that Huck Boyd was driving around the state of Kansas as the Republican National Committee man back in the 1950s and saw the lights on in the courthouse in Russell County. And wanted to know who was working up there so late at night, and went in and met, introduced himself to Bob Dole, and thus began a great friendship that lasted until Huck's death. Um, and I don't remember what year, but sometime in the mid '80s, when I started working for the senator in 1981, there was no mistake that Huck was well. He was the Republican National Committee man from Kansas and had been for many years, but he was also somebody that was the most down to earth wise elder statesman that I could imagine and and I think I talked to him every day on the phone for a while and of course I didn't appreciate the significance of that uh, and and we worked on a project once Huck decided that to help northwestern Kansas and he was from Phillipsburg they needed better rail service so he cooked up a, a good idea to use some to, to put together some package to extend some rail service there and I remember Dole telling me, you will really, really enjoy your time working with Huck. And I think he knew he was in his later years and all that. So, 
so Huck and I worked on this thing, but he, Dole used to talk about Huck and how wise he was, and he would every now and then say, just call Huck and check in on him, see what's going on out there. And, you know, of course, I don't know how many times he called him on his own and, and all that, but every time Huck was in town, he would spend some time with, with Dole. And when he died, Dole was really shaken up. And I, it was one of the few times that I saw him really express emotion to me. He called me on the phone. He had just heard about it. And, uh, and he knew I had been a big fan and close to Huck, or not, not as close as he was, but I was a big fan of Huck's. And, and he had tears in it. You know, I could tell he was choked up talking about Huck. And, you know, Huck sort of took a chance on him. You know, he was, he was a nobody. And you always remember those kind of people that, that, that just saw the talent, saw the, the passion, saw the, the potential for Dole. And he was critical to Dole's career. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he could also, Huck had a way when Dole was doing something or carving out a position or being too strident, Huck had, had a way of communicating that to Dole in a way that didn't put him on, put him on the defensive at all. I only saw that once or twice, but it was really, I remember thinking, I wish I had written that down. I, I, that was a good lesson. Whatever he just did, I want to learn how to do. Do you think he might have had a role to play and would have done well with the 88 campaign? Do you think he was, he was too old by then, but he would have, he would have been a, a useful, you know, he was a great asset to Dole as a friend and as a confidant. So it's... Because you were in the personal office, of course, you, you got a lot of traffic with and, and concern about Kansas. Um, so one of our, the last questions I have for you is talk for a moment about Dole as a Kansan. Well, at the end of the day, it was his great strength. He drew strength from being from the Midwest. He drew strength from the adversity that he had suffered not only in the war, but in the economic conditions of Kansas at the time. Um, and I think it, it really shaped his view of the world. Um, I think he, you know, could see for miles from that little vantage point of, of Kansas. And, and uh, I think, you know, another thing I would say about, about his experience from, from being from Kansas, I think he had the sixth sense when he was in Washington and he first became part of the leadership and you know, was, he was a celebrity. He and Elizabeth were the star couple. So it's not easy to get on an airplane and travel to Kansas and spend your weekends touring around out there. And there were times when, you know, geez, Senator, you need to get out there. We need to go do a tour. And yeah, we will, but I'm doing this. And I think he had a sixth sense of when it was time for him to go out there and reconnect. And, and there were times when he would, frankly, I would say, he would never say this, but I would calculate, he would dread the trip. Every time he was there, he drew strength from the people and always kind of wished he could have stayed longer, you know, when he would go out there for three or four days. It was an amazing thing, you know. All it took him, you know, every town he'd go to, he'd, he'd walk down the street and he'd remember somebody that he knew from 20 years before or 10 years before. That's who he was. That's, that's where he was from. If you had time travel here, if you could relive a day with Bob Dole, is there any particular day that would come to mind? 
well, there are two days, one of happiness and one of, of uh, sadness. Happiness would have been the day he was elected majority leader. Um, he didn't tell me. Probably Joanne is the only one that knew what his own vote count in his head was about whether he could win on the second or the third ballot. But I had a sense of it, and I went over to his house. I took a bottle of champagne, and I had the guy let me in and wrote him a note before the results were in. And I said, I have a sense this is going to work out. I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds. I took a bottle of champagne. He appreciated that. Uh, it was a great day for him, and in a way, it just it validated so many things to... Of course, I hadn't known him when he was elected, you know, when he was selected to be the Gerald Ford's running mate. That would have been a big day. So the other day would have been the day he lost the New Hampshire primary in 88. And that was probably the day that he knew he would never be president. Of course, he didn't know 96 would come around again, but he had it in his gut that everything was going right. And his emotions went from here to here in the span of about two or three days. And then particularly by the middle of that day, he knew that he wasn't going to win. And it was an awful day for him, and and yet it was real life, and it was, you know, it was just so memorable. Do you sense that in '88 he he, you say it's it was his time, he really had the fire in the belly to be president? Absolutely, he had he he had more fire in his belly and more determination, and and. I've wondered, and I don't subscribe to this theory, but George Bush had it easy. He went to prep schools, and he came from a wealthy family. Dole came from a different background. Uh, I never sensed there was any class resentment or anything like that. I really don't. But he felt like he was the better man, and not that George Bush is a bad man. They've, they've become friends and, and all that, but I think Dole thought it. This is my time. How do you think Dole will be remembered in history, going down through the ages? I think a gritty warrior who, above all, tried to do what he thought was best for the country. Um, circumstances had it such that he never got a chance to lead the country as president, but he certainly provided extraordinary leadership in the Senate. Um, I think he was a guy that that made the tough calls uh, and and provided a kind of leadership that I f I fear may be evaporating from the political landscape. Thanks. <laughs>